listening to the Child Life Cooperative Podcast, a place where child life professionals share their real and honest stories with host and certified child life specialist, Allie Jones. A tiny cry can be heard from a premature baby getting an IV. For months, a five-year-old brother has remained in the NICU waiting room day after day, dreaming what it will be like to finally get to meet his baby sister. But these babies won't remember any of this, right? Could a child life specialist even make a difference here? Certified child life specialist Rania Rob would strongly say yes. Child life is certainly needed in the NICU setting. After years of building a child life presence in the NICU, Rania shares her struggles and victories as she supports even the smallest of humans and their families. Now, here's this week's honest story. All right. Hello, Child Life Cooperative community. This is your host, Allie Jones. And today I am with my wonderful guest, Miss Rania Robb, who is going to share a little bit about the NICU, which I'm so excited to hear about her experience, as I know we've had a lot of our listeners reach out that have wanted to learn more about the NICU, myself included. So Rania, thank you so much for joining us this morning. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm excited. Yes, awesome. And just to kind of just jump right in, why don't you tell us a little bit about where you currently work? Yes, so I am um, a full-time child life specialist in the NICU. We are about um, a 60-bed, 62-bed unit. We have 40 rooms, um, and I'm the only one that's in this unit. I'm primarily here, but um, I do have the on-call phone. We are um, a children's hospital within an adult hospital, so I do have other child life specialists that I work with, but I'm the only one primarily, like I said, in the NICU. Mm Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey and how you became a NICU child life specialist? Like what sort of background did you have? Did you ever work in the NICU as an intern or what was it like becoming where you are today? Yes. So in high school, I always knew that I wanted to work, I mean, from really early on, that I always wanted to work um, with children in a hospital setting. And so, you know, when you're younger, the original thought is I'm going to be a doctor. So that was kind of my path. Um, even with high school, I went to a special like healthcare high school. It was um, like a health professional high school. And then in college, I majored in chemistry. So that's actually what my degree is in. And throughout my career, um, as a student, I was really introspective kind of throughout kind of like, yes, so this is what I want to do. So I'm going to tailor my classes specifically towards medical school. And, um, but the more, the great thing about taking more classes and different disciplines is you learn about what opportunities are out there. And one time I, um, took a class on that's medical sociology. And I also learned though, that, um, being a career student, like medical school student, um, was not what I wanted. So I did more research and came across the field of child life, remembering that in high school, I volunteered under child life specialists, Mm. um, one of the high school, I mean, at one of the hospitals that, um, I was near and it was a great experience. Um, but since I wasn't focused on that at the time, I kind of put it in the back of my mind. Um, and you know, I'm a faithful person and I really prayed about what, um, my journey for a career would look like. Um, and that kind of came to the front. So I researched, um, at the time it was the child life council's website mm-hmm. and looked at what classes they required. Um, it's a little bit different than it is now before they just required 10 classes within certain topic areas. Um, now it's much more detailed. So, um, I 
did graduate with my degree in chemistry and then went back to school to get classes that would count towards those um, discipline areas that you had to get. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a little bit more broad. Uh, So I was able to get that. I went back to school and got that and then did my internship in Houston, um, which is where I'm originally from, and uh, was able to do one of my main rotations in the NICU. And so I um, had a great, great guidance on what a NICU program, you know, could look like. And, um, they were great at showing me what they were able to do, what they weren't, you know, limitations, what they weren't able to do, what they focused on, but yet what the potential was. Um, and that was tremendously helpful then because see, I was married and my husband was living in Iowa. So, Mm -hmm. um, after I did my internship, I came back to Iowa and I knew that I had to work in Iowa in the Des Moines area specifically and upon research realized they didn't have um, a NICU program so kind of going back a minute when I applied for internship opportunities I looked for areas that I could be marketable meaning I could get experience in and then take that information back into this specific area that they didn't have it and so NICU was one of them which is why I requested it to be one of my main rotations and that request was granted and it was great experience so then I was able to come back here and at the hospital that I'm at right now um, was able to go to them and um, I was lucky that some of the people who were in leadership positions were aware of child life and had expressed some interest in the past in having one Um, and now with me being able to say, hey, I have this experience and I'm able to, you know, create a program and this is what it would look like and kind of present that research and information. Um, They were able to, um, you know, write up a line and I could apply for the position and I did. And so I was able to develop this program from the ground up and continue to, um, you know, make adjustments as needed and improve it and strengthen it um, based on the changing needs of our unit. Wow, that's incredible. That's that's so neat that you that you just saw a need and you ran after it and that you were really had the intention to market yourself and to even have the boldness to step into creating a position. That's awesome. What was it like when you initially were in the NICU during this internship rotation? What kind of drew you to the NICU setting? What sort of things made you excited about it? Well, it was its own population. So funny because Um, When you read textbooks, a lot of them that you read through your education classes, I mean, through your child development classes, um, are actually starting at birth. You know, they they mention real briefly this prenatal period um, about the importance that, you know, moms take for themselves and then, hey, babies can be born premature and then they go right into um, at birth and normal development or, you know, and then typical and atypical development and, um, and then here I was in this world where I thought I learned all of this great information and I was like, whoa, mm. <laughs> I know nothing. Mm. Um, and, um, and it was just so interesting because it was a different approach actually for me. It's one thing when you learn about stuff and then you get to see it, right? So you're learning a child development mm. class, you're in a child development class and you learn about how toddlers play and then you watch it unfold on the playground at the park or, you know, when you're in a daycare setting or, and, and it's really interesting and you're cool and you're like, oh, I can see this and I can see that and you can watch it. Well, I had to do kind of the reverse in the mm-hmm. NICU, if you will. I mean, I read a couple things to help me prepare to understand terminology and to gauge like what really it meant to be premature on a brain perspective, but to watch it and then go back and figure out why or what I was watching and be able to connect the dots 
like from my own, that was fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that put a completely different spin on this population that I didn't otherwise know. It's not that it wasn't interesting to me, the other worlds, um, but I knew that I could have a chance in this world. And I knew that to do that, I would have to study it really well, be very perceptive of this population and and what's typical and atypical because usually premature babies, to be honest, are all atypical because nobody develops outside the womb, you know, right. regularly. Um, but there are some tendencies, um, but it was just really fascinating to kind of see all of that and, you know, a baby born really, really early, seven weeks out is going to be different than a baby born at that, you know, time. So that's what piqued my interest originally is that um, what was offered at this hospital and where I knew that I could see myself and what is, re- you know, re- what would be realistic um, is also what made it interesting, what mm-hmm. made it such a draw. Right. It's neat to hear the way that you really care about becoming specialized in the NICU, that you're a specialist, a child life specialist, but you're also a specialist of the NICU. And I'm curious how you went about learning different things. Like, did you seek out certain articles or people or how, how did you kind of become a more knowledgeable person about NICU and babies? Right. So, um, though it is great if you can specialize to make yourself, I don't want to negate the importance of recognizing how, I mean, how, how really important those skill set is of general, just understanding general pediatrics. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really important to get a base for the wide range of ages that you will encounter. Because although I work primarily in the NICU with the babies, I do encounter their siblings. Mm-hmm. And I do work with them. So um, I just, I didn't want someone to think that I completely focus on babies and then that's it. No one, you know, like anyone over the age of one, I, I just don't know anything about. Mm-hmm. Um, so sorry. So that was kind of a side note. Anyhow. Yeah, no, um, that makes sense. So in terms of information gathering, I really spoke during my internship because I was in this sponge phase. Um, I wanted to know how the multidisciplinary team worked and really understanding how child life fit in that. Because although child life is in and of itself a distinct field. And yes, there are things that we do that um, some of the things may overlap a little bit with other fields, right? In terms of providing, you know, psychosocial care, we may ask similar questions as the social workers do, but we don't do the same things, mm-hmm. right? The assessment piece may ask very similar questions. Um, or, you know, the way that we interact with babies may look the same as OT and PT, but we're both working on very different things. Um and, and so I wanted to know how specifically does child life fit in that puzzle in the NICU. So to do that, I had to talk with the different specialists. And then I wanted to know what books they were reading that helped them in their knowledge of the NICU, mm-hmm. uh, of this population. So an example of that would be, um, there's a nursing book, right? So one of the things that I do in the NICU is provide procedural support to babies. Okay, mm-hmm. that's great. If if for somebody to say, well, that's great, you're just here for the baby, which which is true, but if I don't know what procedure it is, then I don't know how to properly hold the baby, position the baby, or how to anticipate the next, next thing. Mm-hmm. So it was very important for me to gauge what it is that I'm supposed to do at the bedside. And so um, I would read things um, like an example um, of, of an important book that I read is about developmental interventions in the NICU. Okay, that's really a broad book, but it, it really goes through how the brain develops and how um, 
know, how, how the different disciplines work within the realm of providing medical care with safety, with, with consideration to this developing brain. Um, so um, another one is developmental care of newborns and infants. Um, there's another one called developmental and therapeutic interventions in the NICU. Mm. So a lot of them, you know, they're not going to say, this is what child life specialists do, this is what occupational therapy does. But really it talks about how a baby develops and what, um, what are the ways in which babies show stress or overstimulation or things like that. And that is what guides me in terms of how that I'm going to interact with babies. It's, it's neat to hear you talk about it because you clearly know your stuff, which is really neat. And I love the way that you also hit on how you need to know so many different aspects, not just focused on an infant development, but you're, you're taking into consideration children in general and how to become a child life specialist in that setting. Would you mind sharing a little bit about what a typical day could look like for you? I know that's, how do you even answer that question with child life with a world that changes so much, but what sort of, what sort of typical services do you provide? Um, So just like with other units that um, have child life, I do oversee volunteers and um, train them and supervise them and I uh, receive donations from the community, so I'm kind of the community point person. So if somebody has a question about donating or making something for the unit, um, then I'm that person. So between fielding those calls and accepting the donations or setting up times for volunteers, um, I also oversee the internship program here. Um, Mm. So those are kind of the administrative side. And then patient side, I try to talk with the nurses. Um, in the morning when I get here, I get to sense the sheet and I walk around and talk with the nurses to kind of see what the day looks like. I have great rapport with the rounding nurses who are rounding with the physicians. Um, and so if a procedure is coming up, they'll let me know ahead of time if it's something that we can plan out in the day. Um, if, you know, an IV goes bad, for example, that's not something you can say, oh, at two o'clock, so-and-so's IV is going to go bad. Um, so mm-hmm. for those sorts of things, they kind of call me throughout the day. Um, for different procedures that are kind of spontaneous, you know, unexpectedly, um, then they'll they'll call me and then I'll provide support at the bedside. Um, but otherwise, I do try to schedule my time around, you know, certain babies um, that need uh, certain things. And so um, if there's a baby whose family, for example, I know um, isn't able to be there at the bedside, um, then I will try to make sure that I work between OT and PT schedule and that one of us, somebody, will be there to have interaction with that baby. Um, or if there's a baby that I have been working with, um, I have a play plan with them, for example, and I see them three times a week, um, then if that's one of the days, then I'll touch base with the nurse and, you know, see what time I can see them or work with them. If there's, if our unit is open to siblings, um, then sometimes I will have made a schedule um, or made an appointment with a family for them to bring up some of the kiddos that they're going to see the baby for the mm-hmm. first time. Then I'll work with the siblings and do a preparation um, before going in. Um, I usually do those for the babies that have, um, like, more equipment on them. I call that, um, I don't know if people like this term or not, but I call it, like, visually threatening, mm-hmm. meaning that initial reaction, the shock, when you go in and you expect to see this, this you know, Gerber baby, if you will, and you walk in, you're like, whoa, that's my sibling, and that child is so overwhelmed with the other stuff that's on the baby as our parents that they kind of don't see the baby. Um, so I call that visually threatening. And so my job, my goal is to talk with the siblings ahead of time and prepare them so that they have time to see all that stuff 
um, in pictures so that when they come to the bedside, that stuff is not the focal point anymore. It's the baby. Mm. Um, so I, you know, we'll make time for that. So right now it's RSV season and there are no siblings to prepare. They can't go in. Um, so I try to, um, talk with families about different ways that they can support the siblings since they can't come up. Um, I also train, um, we have a different program that supervises siblings for families. So the goal of that is, as a unit, we want parents to be at bedside as much as possible, right? I mean, everyone across wants their parents to be with their children as much as possible. And Child Life wants to help facilitate that and then be at the bedside with the child in the event that the parent can't. Um, but one of the roadblocks that I notice is that parents have other kids. Mm-hmm. And if the kids can't be at the bedside or if they're limited in terms of their time at the bedside, what are they supposed to do with them? And in an age where people don't live as close to their network, their support, as people used to, for whatever reason, um, there needs to be, you know, other supports in place um, that can provide the services. And so I work with um, the volunteers to develop what's called the supervised play sessions, where we have volunteers that their job is to interact and play with siblings so that the parents can be at the bedside. What a, what a lot of different jobs that you have. What about challenges that you faced in the NICU? Would you mind sharing any any ones that have been especially prominent in your time as a NICU child life specialist? Oh, absolutely. Um, anytime that you're dealing with babies, I think that you're going to be in an area where people are territorial. Mm-hmm. And um, being a child life specialist, I will tell you that when I came into this field, it was uh, like 13 years ago when I started. And so having child life in the NICU was relatively new for this area. Uh, I mean, not just this area as in this hospital, but as in this Midwest area. Like, I was the only one in this city for a long time in the NICU. Mm -hmm. And even in the, I would say, in in central Iowa or even in the state for a while. But anyhow, so, so the nurses and the staff didn't quite know how to work with me. Um, it's not that they weren't willing, but they just didn't know, like, where, where my duties start and where their duties end. Um, but part of them, too, is it's it, they felt threatened. Like, so we have you here because you don't think I can do a good enough job of talking with siblings? Or you don't think I can do a good enough job of, you know, making sure the babies aren't crying while I'm starting the IV? Um, so part of it is is education, right? We're not there to do their job. We're there to help them do their job. But most importantly, we're there to be as a team member to help the baby be successful, period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And really kind of um, emphasizing that point is is a very long process. I know that sounds silly, but it, it's true. And even to this day, I have nurses who um, don't work as well with me. And it's still a struggle, but a lot of it is education and truly building allies, like Mm -hmm. knowing who the people you can go to all the time who are going to be like, absolutely, Ron, I'm an advocate for you, and um, I'm going to call you when I have procedures that, that the baby needs support for. And over time, the nurses see, oh, this is actually good for the baby, and it has nothing, like it doesn't affect me at all. Like it is not at all an insult to the fact that I can't do everything. Or that I'm not doing it well. I mean, ultimately, for me in this in this unit, the nurses are the ones who have the strongest ties to the families. They know the babies best, and I never state that I know the babies better than them. Absolutely not. So I try to help them understand that they can't. We all recognize be with one baby for two hours. 
they have other babies they have to care for. But this baby needs someone to be with them for two hours. Mm-hmm. That's where I can come in. I'm not doing any of the nursing things at all. I don't feed babies. I don't change their diapers. I don't take their temperatures. I don't start IVs. I don't give them medication. I play with them. I talk to them. I interact with them. Mm-hmm. And I hold them if they need holding during a feeding. And I offer the pacifier if they're awake. And I read to them. And I, I just give them that when other people aren't able to. So obviously, if a parent is there, let's try to do that. Let's empower the parent to know how to properly interact with their baby. That is absolutely the first and foremost goal. My job is to help support that to happen. So does that mean having a sibling program so that that mom can be at the bedside? Sure, let's do it. Mm-hmm. So my job is to help support so that, you know, primarily those those primary transactions can happen. You know, the nurse doesn't want to spend 45 minutes starting an IV on a screaming kid. They probably have like 10 minutes to start this IV before they have to move on to the next thing. So really trying to help nurses um, see that I'm on their side. Mm-hmm. The ultimate goal of helping them get through their tasks and do so in a, in a humane possible, you know, in, in a humane sense. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you sharing that because I think oftentimes the territorial vibes can sometimes be something that is more unspoken or just a sense that we can get from other professions or even honestly, I've noticed myself moments when I can almost feel territorial. And so I love the way that you're, you're helping people unite in the common goal of the patient and also helping show how you're seeking teamwork in the midst of this and how you're seeking to support them, not to, not to undermine them or any of those sort of dynamics. So that's really, really neat. Before we switch on to a different segment, feel like any memorable stories of the NICU or like that, those moments that leave you feeling like, oh, I'm so thankful for what I do. Um, yes. So we had a baby recently who, um, who was what we call an NAS baby. So basically that means a baby whose body is going through, we don't really like to term it withdrawal symptoms because there's a psychological component to, you know, being addicted and the babies don't have that, right? Their bodies are just used to getting, um, something that they are trying to wean from. Um, so they become very agitated, very hard to calm, um, very fussy babies. And I, um, this particular case, this mom, um, was not able to be at the bedside very much for whatever reason. And so I've been working with this baby and, you know, it starts out real small, like, like we're in a dark room and I'm holding this baby, um, trying to get this baby to calm. And then the next time it may be, I, you know, keep doing that. And then the period of crying becomes a little less. So it takes less effort for me to get the baby to calm, you know, Mm -hmm. each time. Mm -hmm. And, and then, you know, the next time I am called in or that I work with the baby, we can have the lights a little dim and I can sing to the baby while I'm moving. And then the next day I can come in and the baby is calm and sleeping and I'm reading to the baby. So they're just used to sounds around them without overreacting. Mm-hmm. And then, so there's just a progression. And so in, in one of the um, final times that I was able to enter, I mean, like the latter part of the progression is um, the nurse walked in and um, she just decided to watch me. Like, 
you know, the nurses, they call me in to interact with babies, but they don't really know what that means. Sometimes that can mean, like I said, holding a baby during a gavage feeding. Sometimes that means, you know, and the eye contact is like one minute. And then the next time I'm holding the baby and the eye contact could be like five minutes. So then I can sing to the baby or read books to the baby and the baby is not overstimulated and not showing signs of stress. So, you know, it's not really often that a nurse will hang out and watch that, but that's what they assume is going on. At this point, though, this baby would just not be screaming in the crib when he's awake. He would just know, I mean, because I had a set schedule, like a set time that I would come and see him. And so here it's this time, and I walk into his room, and his eyes are open, and he's just laying in his crib. And then I pick him up, and I play with him. And that would mean, because we've worked on that tolerance level, on that increasing engagement ability, he can um, tolerate, you know, um, like antsy wincy spider. So I'm sitting him up in my lap and we're doing the antsy wincy spider and he's loose in terms of his limbs. So he is letting me move his arms to do it. And then, you know, we start doing wheels on the bus and you can see his eyes are moving with the motions of my hands. And he's just like totally enthralled, like a baby's supposed to be. He's a, he's so at this point he's term, like he's, you know, the age, he's not a preemie. He's an age of an older baby. And, and so the nurse is just in there going, wow. And then when I stop talking and I'm transitioning to another song, the baby makes a sound, a vocal, you know, coo. And then the nurse is just like amazed that this mm. is the same kid. And she's he's like, she looks at me and she's like, how can this be? Like, he's just so engaged and he's just like a regular baby. And I'm like, oh, this is what we work towards. This is yeah. like, it was like her aha moment. Um, and so that was just, I was really proud of that moment because it took a lot of time, um, and, and work and, um, you know, investment in this child that people, I mean, I'll be honest with you, kind of gave up on like, oh my gosh, he's a crazy kid. The lights are always going to have to be off for him. His mom is not ever going to be here. How is this going to work when he goes home? And you know, all of this, um, and it wasn't, I mean, in that moment, I think the nurse was like, oh, wait, there's hope. Or, oh, wait, the, the story can go a different way. That is awesome. And how you were able to use play as a part of that to support his development and to support him coping with all of that. That's, a, that's really a very special story and a very touching one to hear how you were able to also model for the nurse the power of this. Yes. Thank you for sharing. And, and now we're transitioning into our What Would You Do segment. Okay. If you're ready for that. So this will be a scenario where you can give kind of a brief sense of what you may do in the NICU. And, and actually this question kind of came up in, in my mind even listening to you talk about supporting little babies with IV starts. So are you ready for the What Would You Do segment? Yes, yes. All right, perfect. You have just arrived to the NICU for your shift and you hear a little baby screaming in a room. The staff is attempting to place an IV but have had two unsuccessful attempts this far. Parents are bedside and tearful. The staff shares that they don't need your help. The baby won't remember any of this anyways. What are some of the ways you could advocate for this patient and for the family? What would you do? This is a real story like this actually happens right I mean sometimes mm -hmm. because I I'm the only one that's here so it is not really the nurse's responsibility just to know when I'm here and when I'm not so it's kind of they sometimes get started on stuff and I walk in and I hear it um and again as I mentioned there are a few nurses that I still have some friction with and so 
um, I would not be at all surprised to hear them say something like that. So mm-hmm. in this situation, how I would respond is I would walk into the room and immediately introduce myself to the parents and say, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, um, it is difficult to, you know, hear your baby crying when, you know, there's something that's important um, that has to be done, but it can be really difficult to hear. Um, so I would look at the nurses and I would say, you know, I see that you've already tried a few times. Do you need other supplies that I can run and get right now? Um, so again, in my attempt to do that, I'm trying to help them see that I'm, I'm here for them also. Mm -hmm. Um, and if they say, oh, we need another catheter or no, we're okay. I would say, okay, great. Um, do we have any sweeties for the baby? So I'm not asking for an invitation. I'm there. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I would just go into exactly how I'm going to help the baby. And so I've moved on past them. If they're not going to accept that initial invitation, then I've moved on and we're moving, we're focusing on the baby. And so sweeties is, um, like a sugar, water um, mixture that can be offered in very small doses, if you will, like just drops at a time with the pacifier and it helps get the baby engaged in the pacifier. And the idea is that oral um, part, so remember Freudian, um, the oral stage, um, is helping them to focus um, on something innate like sucking, which helps them calm. And um, the sweeties with the pacifier um, when put together, research shows them that it can reduce pain for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so my goal would be helping to do that, reduce their that baby's pain and get them in, in a positive coping or a calming state. Um, so for me to do that, I would say I'm here um, to focus on the baby um, and help her cope while the nurses focus successfully on placing this IV is how I would present it to the parents. So again, I've, I've, I've now eliminated the chance for the nurses to kick me out of the room because I've stated who I am and my purpose um, to advocate for this baby right in front of the parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically I say I'm here to help focus on the baby um, and help her cope with while the nurses are focusing um, on successfully placing this IV. Um, so I've I've now given people their jobs, right? The nurses are doing their IV and I'm on the baby. And then I ask, you know, do you have sweeties? If not, I'll go, you know, I'll, I'll go grab some real quick. Um, and then I offer with the pacifier. And then if I look at what extremity they're doing and I look at the environment, is there a blanket underneath? I'm going to try to re-swaddle the other extremities so that the baby isn't kicking um, to help contain that baby. So I'm going to use what I have without disrupting what's going on. So if the baby already has a blanket under them and it's just disheveled because this is the nurse's second attempt, I'm just going to take the remnants of that and try to work with that without picking the baby up and, again, kind of, you know, moving everyone around because that's not going to help the cause. They're, they're focusing on getting everything done. Um, so I got to work with what I got. Mm-hmm. Um, and then try to reduce that light. So sometimes even just taking my hand and placing it over the baby's eyes to reduce that extra bright light will help, um, you know, let the baby... Uh, not have to fight so much stimulation immediately. Um, and, and so then you, hopefully then I would, that whole thing would help the baby cope a little bit and then the procedure would be better. Um, and, and of course, you know, you can't always have success, right? I mean, a baby crying doesn't mean a baby is not successful. Um, but in, in our unit, the way that I present it to new nurses as well as existing nurses is we try to have two goals in this unit with every procedure. That one, the baby is properly supported and, and coping well for two, the procedure to be successful or, you know, and that the procedure is successful. Mm, that's a good way to gauge it. And I think just even the different considerations that you have, taking into account the sensory stimulation and ways to support parents, way to validate them. And, and I love even the confidence that you exude of 
recognizing that you have a place. It's not like, oh, nurses, do you mind if I stand here or help? Like, but that you seek teamwork with them, but then also continue to stick to what you know could help and ways to at least be a part of that goal of making it less overwhelming for them and seeking the goal of their comfort. So that's wonderful. Thank you so much for answering. That actually gave me a lot of a lot of insight as well on how to help support little babies for procedures. Yes, you're welcome. Absolutely. So we'll conclude our time together with the rapid five segment, which is five different questions, five brief answers, and just kind of a a fun way to wrap up our time together as well. Okay. Well, let's begin. Number one, finish the sentence. After a long day at work, the thing that re-energizes me is... Time with my kids, because working here, you take into account, you know, everyone's different journeys and their struggles, um, you know, challenges that they face and to see the babies overcome them. Or even when I get called to another area to see all that and then you go home and I have this, you know, family that I just try really hard not to take for granted. (laughs) But I come home and I'm like, they, they, you know. We, um, I'm a, I'm a faith-filled person, so coming together um, and praying together as a family keeps me balanced. Absolutely, that's wonderful. Number two, what is a discipline that you especially love partnering with, with a co-treating for a patient? Well, I co-treat with as many as I can, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So for procedural support, I'm co-treating with the nurses. Um, but I, I really enjoy, there's um, an occupational therapist that I um, co-treated with and a speech therapist. And they have, you know, they're a wealth of information, too, for what they do. It's amazing. Number three, what is one of your most favorite milestones for a growing baby? Eye contact and smiling. Ooh, I love it. That is very special. When the babies are young, they just don't have the, uh, you know, that tolerance for eye contact. And sometimes when, then when you get it, it's not gazing around, it's actually looking at. And, and so that's really cool. And that comes much earlier than smiling. But we have some babies that are still here after a while. And so smiling is fun because they recognize you and they are anticipating. And it's fun. Yes, totally, totally. It's great therapy in a lot of ways with a smiling baby. Yes. Number four, what is one tip you have for a child life specialist on how to build good rapport with a nurse? Phrasing how what you do helps them and the patient. Um, Because everyone, you know, again, we're talking about territory, right? So people think that you're trying to step on their toes. But if everyone can see that everyone has, you know, the same goals, it's just how you achieve those goals is different because of your different skill set. Um, but that you can work together to help achieve that. That's important. So short end, phrasing what you do to help them and the baby. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And number five, being in the NICU as long as you have, how would you say you've evolved as a NICU child life specialist? Um, I've become more perceptive to the individual babies themselves and to become less judgy. Um, we see so many different situations of families and babies and diagnoses that come in here. And when I first started, I was young and naive. Not in a mean sense, but you just kind of think that everyone has this great, easy life and that they are making these difficult decisions and it's, you know, upon them. But but then over time, it's wisdom too. And um, so becoming less judgmental and really meeting the family where they are. Um, has really helped me to be a stronger, 
um, more effective child life specialists, more compassionate. Mm, I love that, Rania. That is really great wisdom. And I thank you for sharing that with us as well as a challenge for anyone listening to, to try to have that compassion, that same compassionate understanding. So that concludes our, our time together. I feel like there's so much more that we could hear about the NICU, but I really appreciate you being willing to just even scratch the surface of what this specialized area can look like and the ways that you've grown your own program, which is amazing and, and very special. So thank you so much for taking the time today, Rania. Yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you to our listeners for listening to the Child Life Cooperative. In the meantime, as you continue about your lives, whether you're a student or a professional, may we all press into the mission of the Child Life Cooperative by learning through reflection, uniting for support, and equipping students to advance the child life profession. Thank you all so much.